Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by Artificial Intelligence, I for one welcome the new robot overlords. Let's dim the lights and start the show. Welcome everybody to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Morel and Company Shipping, delivering your merchandise and justice eventually. Welcome everybody to The Pestle. I am Wes. And I am Todd. And we are filmmakers, producers, writers, actors, uh, just all around human beings, I guess. I don't know. Uh, what Speak we like yourself. To, yeah, that's right. We like to break apart films and learn a little bit more about storytelling, filmmaking, um, and hopefully along the way, illuminate you, the listener, to this process, this magical, mystical uh, mysterious process of bringing movies and TV shows. And uh, maybe some of this you can even use in your day-to-day work, whether that's, you know, uh, some of the the terminology, you know, if you're a filmmaker or a photographer yourself or some of the ideas behind it. Um, I'm always impressed where slowly in time, as I digest some of these ideas and concepts, I find just little ways to insert them into my own filmmaking. Uh, even if it's something as simple as a product video, or something more complex, like, you know, whatever, a, a 45 minute narrative uh, for a paying client, like, uh, I, I try to combine and, and use them judiciously, I don't just try to slap everything in, because I feel like what we discover every week are tools, and you don't use every tool for for, for every occasion. Uh, we, we did one series uh, uh, film a while back um, on Ready Player One, and there is some camera cheating that Spielberg likes to do. Uh, and on a project that I ended up shooting like a month later, my producer was like, Hey, let's cheat this, cheat this angle. And I was just like, I don't think that's the right tool for this moment because of, you know, X, Y, Z reasons. Um, however we can do this instead. And I think this will work really well. And so these are all tools that, you know, I try to, I try to use when I can, and I don't know, does this ever seep into your work? Yeah, it does. Hold on. Sorry. Can we pause for a second? We can pause for a second. (laughs) Okay. <laughs> Edit. So that'll make sense, uh, more sense in a, in, in a little while. We we were recording on a Thursday night, and now we are recording on a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> and again, we'll we'll get into that. Visually, this will look really weird if you're watching us on YouTube, uh, which we actually just broke the 100 subscriber thing on youtube so we're huge we're right up there with mr beast um, Uh and whoever else i don't really know who he is outside of what you tell me but i was posing you a question if you recall you know 96 hours ago um if what we do on the podcast ever seeps into your work because for me it does pop up here and there as i'm studying and learning oh you know here's a subtle way or here's here i think for me maybe more than anything it's been how can I reduce my edits? How can I do less editing by doing more in frame? How can I capture more in a single shot through a pan or a tilt or just a better composition? Uh, because I see most really, really strong filmmakers look to, you know, tell a more concise story and use editing judiciously. Like an edit needs to be for a specific reason other than we're just trying to piece stitch together a bunch of disparate parts. Um, and so I think that's one of the big impacts that, you know, doing our show has made on me is just uh, the meticulousness of every shot and how it's planned. And so I'm, I'm trying to get better and better at that as 
um, one of the things that I take away, but uh, has our work here on the podcast infiltrated your work as a producer and filmmaker uh, in your day to day? Yeah, I mean, it it definitely did before the pandemic when we were doing more live shooting. Um, but because I work for a uh, a tech company that does very specific stuff, not so much when we're talking about animation. I mean, it it, it does from time to time when we talk about production and, and working with creatives and pushing things forward and getting, you know, talking to clients and stuff. Um, but as for the creative side, it, was, it very much did when we were doing a whole lot of like onset filming. And that's coming back now, thankfully. Um, looking forward to that coming back. And I think that that I'll definitely handle things different moving forward. Just just with, you know, the stuff that I learned from you when when we cover films that usually it happens in films that I don't really like, I'm not super crazy about, but that you are. Mm-hmm. And and when I get your explanation as to oh why this shot is really good or 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 you know why this this I can tell this piece of directing was really good. I, I see these little nuances that, you know, I can think about later on. I mean, I'm not really a director, but I have had to direct on certain elements, you know, certain projects that we've done. And it's hard. It is, it is a, an all encompassing, you know, you got to see the final picture before anybody else does kind of thing. And so I think that, that if nothing else, I have this, this kind of overarching respect for, not just directing, but just like all the decisions that have to be made throughout the process um, more so than before. Absolutely. I mean, I don't think that it can help but not seep itself in, mm. you know, even when we're talking about animations and, and you know, like uh, stop motion stuff that we do, but it's more subdu- it's subtle. It's more like, you know, beneath the surface kind of stuff. You know, it's, it's not like, a, oh my gosh, when, uh, Villanue did this and so I should try this on this you know this uh this commercial shoot no that's uh that that definitely doesn't happen but um we got this awesome Canon printer and we're gonna do a 45 second push in exactly (laughs) but I think this just talking about this so much you know um the art form so Mm. much uh you know you can't help but learn things, remember things when you're on set or when you're when you're creating something or working with someone else who's creating something uh, to offer thoughts, advice and uh, suggestions. You know, I, I think that's really where it comes in for me. Yeah. That's huge. Yeah. And I think even just having those kinds of sounding boards around as a director is is really useful for me, too. I never get mad at someone for throwing an idea out as long as you're not trying to cram it down my throat. You know, um, those are all good things because sometimes you're right as a director you're holding so much in your head because you you really do need to see the final piece which the more and more you know i'm trying to work on my own feature film i'm like this is impossible i get what fincher means when he says you know i don't know how to make a movie like i i understand that more and more obviously he knows how to make a movie because he makes some of the best ever made but there's there's just so much happening that you can't really keep a 90 minute two hour two and a half hour film in your head all at once the same way you can do that with you know a a five minute piece a short film like i've done plenty of these shorter pieces that i can see it all in my head and i don't really need to reference much like i might because i'm I'm diligent that way i'm still going to keep my shot list and i'm going to mark off my shots uh just because sometimes you get moving really quickly on set but whenever you're, you're you're working through some creative ideas sometimes you have this thing in your head and 
you get locked up a little bit. And so even though I have, you know, we've done over 180 episodes now, like I have a lot of stuff running around in my head. I'm not going to remember all of it all the time uh, or even most of it. Some of the time, <laughs> like it was just too much. And so having another, you know, sound piece that says, Hey, what if we do a reverse angle here? Would that help tell the story? And it's like, Oh yeah, I haven't even been thinking about moving the camera, but that's a really good idea. Well, actually, instead of a reverse, uh, what if we go really wide and, and, you know, from this other end or whatever, like there's a million different circumstances and just having someone else's eyes on set can be really invaluable, um, because there is just so much going on. Um, and there's, I mean, the first, my first directing experience, you know, was, I guess, depending on how you slice it, I always think of it as kerosene, the music video we did. And there was a, a really big piece of the, the puzzle that I just couldn't quite figure out. And we're on set. And I'm like, man, where are the extras coming out of? Uh, I don't I don't get it. And you're like, well, they're just coming out of the other half of the screen because we had we were doing this picture in picture idea, right? We're, we're juxtaposing two different um, shots against each other, split screen, left and right. One's on day, one's on night. And they stitch together to complete an entire uh, frame. Um, and for whatever reason, I just couldn't figure out where we were hiding all the extras because extras pop out and start dancing during the chorus. And I'd been focusing on so many other things uh, like how to make sure we don't mess up the frame and the timing. Cause we were doing on top of the split screen and on top of uh, the time-lapse that we were shooting as the intro, which inverts everything. Once again, I was also, you know, we were also doing a, a speed ramping. And so the, the speed was shifting three times, you know, uh, at sometimes it's going double speed and sometimes it's going normal speed. And at one point it goes triple speed. And so there was just so much going on in my head that I kept struggling to figure out this one very basic idea <laughs> and I'm, we're on set and I'm like, Hey man, I don't get where the extras are going to be hiding. You just, you just kind of look at me and you're like, uh, yeah, I mean, I think they're just hiding on the other side of the screen <laughs> because we're not showing that side, right? It's going to be covered with the inverted shot uh, that we're going to do later tomorrow. And I'm like, Oh, right. <laughs> I remember that. And it's so obvious. And if none of what I'm describing makes sense, I'll, I'll link our, our music video in the, in the show notes so you can watch the video. But it was just very simple stuff. And having you there on set kept a calamity from happening because <laughs> if you weren't in on it from the whole time, like, I don't know what would have happened. Um, yeah, but I remember that. That yeah. was that was fun. That was a very, that was a very, uh, where does the T-Rex come from? Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Moment. That's what it was. You no, know, but that's a, that's a good point. It's just, there's, there's so much, there's so many decisions and everything is a decision. Everything is that it's so easy to get to decision fatigue and miss something. And, you know, like, oh, there's a Starbucks cup in, in Game of Thrones shot, you know, like you're making a million decisions and, you know, unless you have one person can't make them all. Yeah. Definitely not. That's why there is a crew. Usually that's why you have a set dresser. That's why you have you know, all these people doing their specific jobs so that you as a director don't have to keep all that in your head. You're right. How do you do that? How do you keep all that in your head? It's very, very difficult. It's impossible. And staying on task is so important. Like as a director, I really do need to be focused on directing. And I used to look at that as a very 
I don't know, narcissistic idea. Like, oh, I'm a director. I should be directing. And I felt really down on myself for, you know, even considering that to be real. Like, I'm not too good to help out and grab some gear. I'm not too good to, you know, grab a water for someone. Uh, and then the reality hit me at one point, about a year and a half ago, almost two years now, we were making this big 45-minute narrative drama in VR with Ricky, my other producer. And it was the first day on set and I was trying to do it all. I was like shooting what we needed to shoot. Someone needed something. I would run and fetch it for them. I was just trying to be a good guy and a creative collaborator. Um, and then I realized at the end of the day, man, I, I kind of dropped the ball here and there. I could have done this better. And instead of running and grabbing someone, a, a nice cold water, should have been focused on what I was about to be shooting. And so I had that conversation with my producer. I was like, Ricky, uh, he was like, how did the, you know, we, we do a catch up at the end of uh, most days. And he's like, how did today go? Is there anything you want different? Um, anything I can do different, anything you're unhappy with? And I was like, actually, I'm unhappy with myself. I need to focus on directing. So if you catch me stepping too far outside of my, my duties, let me know. So that I can just focus on this thing. I I haven't I didn't spend enough time in the script preparing my scenes. And from then on, I was just like, I don't care what someone needs. That's not my job. My job is to direct. And the more time I can spend preparing for a scene and seeing it in my head and seeing how it fits the scene that came before, how it fits into the greater piece, and how it fits into the scene that comes after, the better I can do directing my actors, directing my crew in order to get exactly what we need in order to make this a successful shoot. Um, because ultimately everyone is there uh, as, you know, selfish and narcissistic as it may sound, they're there to support my, my, my vision. And therefore my responsibility to them is to have a vision. And so if you're out there, you're creating, as long as you're not being a, a, a wad, you know, as, as long as you're not being, you know, this cliche, you know, version of a TV director, uh, right. Where they're just yelling around on bullhorns or whatever, uh, being jerks to everyone. As long as you're not doing that, like don't make it inhospitable, but you really should be there to, to have a vision and to see it fulfilled. Um, and everyone is there to help you with that. Uh, and so I'm trying to get better about accepting that position and, and doing my best to, to not, uh, not let everybody down to do, you know, what I'm supposed to be good at. So awesome. Yeah. So that said, uh, <laughs> what are we covering today, man? Yeah, today we're covering the Count of Monte Cristo, the 2002 version, uh -huh. um, not the original, although there might be some references there. Uh, so if you haven't seen uh, that film, please pause the episode, go watch it. There will be spoilers all over the place. Nice. We're going to talk about a few things. We'll discuss some of the cinematography, the framing, depth of field, and the shutter, shutter angle. Uh, we'll look at some of the story and writing, why comedic beats cut the tension in this film. Um, and we'll also talk about, you know, Edmund's true enemy, as well as the directing and performance, adding significance to a moment and ending a scene with energy. I think uh, we'll get a lot of perspective from Todd um, and other such stuff and things and stuff. <laughs> a quick synopsis of the film. Falsely imprisoned by his jealous friend, air quotes, a man escapes and uses a hidden treasure to exact his revenge. Directed by Kevin Reynolds, screenplay by Jay Walpert, based on the novel by Alexander Dumas, uh, cinematography by Andrew Dunn, and starring Jim Caviezel as Edmond Dantes, Guy Pierce as Fernand Mondego, uh, Dagmara Dominski 
Daminsk, sure, uh, as Mercedes, Richard Harris as Priest, Luis Guzman as Jacopo, uh, J.B. Blanc as Luigi Vampa, Henry Cavill as Albert Mondego, James Frain as Villafort, and Albie Woodington as Danglars. Young Albert has made far too much of the assistance I gave him in Rome. When I arrived in the catacombs, I watched as the criminals who tied Albert to a wall, threatened to cut off his finger and send it to his father as evidence of his abduction. The boy's reply to all this was, do your worst. Life is a storm, my young friend. You will bask in the sunlight one moment, be shattered on the rocks the next. What makes you a man is what you do when that storm comes. You must look into that storm and shout as you did in Rome. Do your worst, for I will do mine. Then the fates will know you as we know you, as Albert Mondego, the man. So you had a rather unique experience up until about a week ago. You'd never seen the kind of Monte Cristo. Mm-hmm. And now uh, a week later, you've seen two different versions of yeah. the Count of Monte Cristo. <laughs> so we had a hard cut at the intro um, because as I was in the middle of uh, feeding Todd a question, he was scanning the show notes and realized something isn't right here. And so apparently Todd, uh, Todd's first instinct on the kind of Monte Cristo as any good filmmaker is to go to the source is to go to the original 1934 version, which I know we all assumed. And so you watched that and then you watched the more recent version, uh, uh, 2002. And so I'm curious, I have no idea what to expect. Uh, did that help or hinder the, the experience? Um, I, I mean, it hindered it, I would say. But not not completely. I mean, I kind of had an idea vaguely of what to expect, but it was it was different, right? Like so, how he so from the original to the 2002 version, how he handles how he like gets revenge on his on his people is different, right? Have you seen the original? No, I've read the book, and I'll talk oh, okay. about that later. Okay, but, yeah, he doesn't kill anybody. In the original, he, he he tackles them with their own vices, right? Their mm-hmm. own against their own vices, which is which is brilliant. And I think, and I'm not trying to reference the 1934 version too much, but just thinking about this this film being made in 1934 and how they handled it, and it, it was basically the first. It, it had to be like the first of its kind to do that kind of thing. It was is just brilliant. Um, but I also, I really enjoyed how they modernized it in 2002, you know, color, they, they, they have all these colors now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Blues and greens. Um, no, I'm when I, and what I, I mean, the modern, I I know, you know, I I mean, modernize the story, um, and, and how he exacts his revenge. I feel like in, you know, a film in 2002, obviously it's going to need to have different content, need to have, you know, different dialogue and, and. Uh, a different result when it comes to uh, exacting revenge because you have a different viewer. Not necessarily because I think that 
that type of revenge that he did in 1934 would not be good revenge today, you know, in 2002, mm-hmm. but you have a different type of viewer that's going in there that, you know, you're competing with, you know, other films like Titanic and like, you know, films with a lot going on and a lot of stakes. Right. And so I think that you kind of needed that in this. And also in the original, the boy isn't his. And in this one, the boy is his, is Edmund Dantes's. Um, and I loved that. I loved that. Um, I also loved in the original that he just adopts the boy. He basically mm. is like, he's been my son, you know, like he just adopts him and that's beautiful and everything. But this version of Edmund Dantes in 2002 is much, I mean, he's uh, much more like standoffish, I feel like. And so uh, because of that, him finding out that the boy is his is, is, is a good twist. It's a good turn that if you'd seen the original or read the book or knew the, the, the original story, you'd be, you'd be shocked. It'd be like, a, oh, okay. So anyway, I really, I really enjoyed it, even though I'd seen the, the, the first one. Um, and, I, and it was interesting to see how are they going to tackle, you know, how he gets out, you know, how he gets into the bag, um, mm-hmm. the, the, um, the death bag when the old man dies and how they're going to tackle that and, and everything. And, uh, I like that idea, a death bag. <laughs> like, a death I don't, bag. I Why not? What they're called sure. now, but I'm just imagining a paramedic <laughs> saying to his other paramedic, Get the like, death bag. Hey, yeah, grab the death bag. <laughs> how do you, I don't know what it is. It. <laughs> what is it? Is it a thing? Do you know it? Yeah. I forget what it's called now. Like cadaver bag or yeah, something. Sure. <laughs> sure. Whatever. Anyway, <laughs> um, but you know, there there are. It was actually very interesting. I'm glad I did, I am glad I watched the first one first. What are you laughing at? What are you laughing at? <laughs> are you still laughing at my death bag? <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> uh, all right, all right. All right I'm done. All Sorry. right. I don't know the words. I just say words, right? Mm. But him. Uh, so, for example, when they throw him over into the water, um he gets to kill the warden. He kills the warden. That doesn't happen in the original, right? Uh, and so that's something where I think maybe for the first time or one of the first, that's like the main first twist in like, if you've seen the original, this is not necessarily that, even though, you know, you know what to expect in a way. Mm-hmm. The large beats are the same, even though a lot of the details have completely shifted. Yes, yes. And and I really I really enjoyed those changes. And, and so it felt like watching another movie. It felt like watching a newer movie. I don't think I could have watched the 2002 version and then gone back to 1934. I liked the, the order I watched it in the old one and then the new one. But, uh, Guy Pierce was fantastic in, in the, I hated him. I hated him so much, so much. And, um, you know, they, they, they did a really good job to make you hate him because in the original hit, he is, um, Ferdinand Mondego is he's in in he has infidelity but it's mm. under the it's under like it's not thrown in her face right in Mercedes face like it is in this one in this one he just throws it in her face and does not care at all and she's also aggressive against him in a lot of ways when she leaves him and he says you please me some of the time and she says you never pleased me like that's fantastic line that would never have been in 1934 but needed to be in this line you know only wish she could have said it to his face because he had walked away in that scene 
But other than that, I, I mean, I really liked it. And I know Henry Cavill was in it because I saw this, but I forgot about it until I saw him walk in. Nice. You know, I was like, I know the whole time I wasn't like, where's Henry Cavill? But when he walked in, I said, oh, there's Henry Cavill. Uh, uh, but I didn't miss him, you know, and I loved yeah. the scenes um, in the prison and how they did that and the old man and um, and the the digging scenes and stuff were very, you know, claustrophobic. And I really liked that. They were very much like that in the original as well, even more so because it was black and white. And so you didn't have like texture on walls and stuff. It was just very. Mm-hmm. And, the, you know, the story as a whole was really was really beautiful. Um, and, and it's an incredible story that has been around for almost a hundred years. And that's pretty cool. If you think about 200 years, close to 200, this was written in, uh, 1844. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. Uh, Dumas, um, who's a really fascinating person. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. He wrote this. That's amazing. That's amazing. I mean, honestly, the, um, what is it? The not foresight, but the, futuristic thought of a, of the storytelling from the mid 1800s that's incredible i mean you know the rule of three there where you have three different people that he's got to go after two's not really enough four is too many three is mm. perfect i think that that goes along with so storytelling that is just ex, expected and and happens even today in like any movie or tv show you watch there's usually like three things that the person has to do or three people that they have to tackle or whatever three is a good solid solid number and and i love it from the mid 1800s to have the foresight to like you know the human foresight to think two's not enough four is too many is is was fantastic maybe and also i'm not sure if he I'm not sure if it was only three in the book. Like they take so many liberties and that's one of the great things. Like at the end of the episode, I'm going to recommend the book. Uh, just spoiler alert number two, but the, because the book is so huge and such a great read. Like I can't remember at all if he, it really just stuck to those three or for the sake of modernizing it. Um, like you were saying mm. that they reduced it and, because they, I think they did a lot of things. I mean, just hearing the way you're describing the the, the first film, and and commenting about, you know, some of these differences. I'm like, oh god, these are such great decisions. You know, him killing the 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 warden was a brilliant decision, and uh, Mondego Fernand uh, being such a wad, and the the comment from uh, Mercedes about, you know, you never please me, uh, and how Fernand is throwing his infidelity in her face. Those are all such great character decisions because it's forcing their the characters who they really are much more clearly to the surface. Whereas in the book, maybe you have 500 pages uh, to kind of suss through this over time. Here you have two hours and you got to make every minute count. Um, and so you start reducing and uh, figuring out and, you know, reducing and in, in cooking, right, is uh, you you pour wine into a pot and you reduce until the water's all evaporated and you're kind of just left with, you know, what's left over. And here I feel like that's what they did, right? They reduced all these characters to their really base instincts um, and who they really are and just pushed it all to the to the surface. Uh, and I, I think it's genius. And I'll certainly dip into that a little bit, but sorry, <laughs> please. No, that was, that, that's fine. That was it. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was fantastic. Um, and I love the story itself. Um, I love, you know, and I think you're going to talk about it later at Edmund's true enemy. I think I kind of know where you're going with that. And maybe, maybe not. No, probably but, more I mean, than me, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, to me, it's him. I mean, it's, yeah. it's obviously him. He doesn't, 
all she, she wants him. His his whole his whole dream to get out of that prison and to get back to her is there. It's in front of him, but he can't see it because he's so blind with with rage and and you know wanting to exact his revenge because that's all he's but that's all he's had also you know for the last several years is you know one of the things and i guess i guess if you think about it you know there's there's also two ways he could have spent his time in prison his motivation could have been to get out to get back to mercedes or it could have been to get revenge and unfortunately he spent most of his effort i feel like plotting his revenge and so when mercedes is in front of him telling him i love you i want to be with you and explains why because one of the things in the original she doesn't get married within a month i mean i think it's within like six months or a year but she thinks he's dead and but in this movie she gets married within a month and we find out that the reason is because she was pregnant and it's brilliant because it could have been they did it so that it could have been edmund dantes's baby and you know guy pierce's character mondego says says ah premature because he realizes that's why the baby was premature because it wasn't even his so so it they they just tie everything together really well in that regard yeah anyway i i loved it i thought it was great um i thought the changes were fantastic and even if the book had more than three the the original movie um only had three and i loved that and i i'm you know i haven't seen too many movies that were older than 1934 but i can't imagine that this had happened in a lot of them where they you've had the rule of three and it just feels good mm. it feels complete when you have tackled that third thing uh that's always how i've felt whenever i've watched something where there's where there's this this three uh these three tasks or these three people or mm. these three things i feel like oh that's enough you know i don't want too much and i don't want too little i feel like three is good so Anyway, I, I agree. I think that's that's absolutely true. And that uh, the rule of three is, you know, pretty well known in comedy, right? Comedy comes in threes. Mm-hmm. And and so you can see that, you know, displayed in probably countless films. And so I think you're you're right on the money. Yeah, I for me, this is one of the best stories ever told. And I'm not saying this is one of the best movies ever made, but this story in and of itself, no matter which iteration, it's one of the greatest stories ever told. I mean, there's a reason that it's almost 200 years um, and we're, we're still thinking about it. And that, you know, certainly goes to credit Dumas, you know, the, who also wrote, you know, Three Musketeers uh, as his other big feather in his cap, so to speak. Wow. Yeah, this guy. And he has such an interesting story because he was born to he's half black. Uh, his mother was a slave at on the island that is now called Hispaniola, which houses uh, Haiti and the Dominican Republic uh, back in the day was St. Domingue. And so he grew up probably spe- speaking French, you know, Haiti now speaks uh, Creole, uh, French Creole. And so that kind of ties into his familiarity with French and all these characters are French, right? Danglar and Viafort and Albert, uh, Edmond Dantes, um, you know, and his name itself, right? Dumas. Uh, so it, it's such it's such an incredible story at the at the highest level right it's it's so satisfying it's this complete fantasy that we all would love to experience um even if not literally you know just the idea of experiencing it is is thrilling that you're wrongly accused and um you you break out of prison to find all you know 
un, unimaginable treasure and use it to plot a revenge. Like that's, that is nuts and bolts. Absolutely incredible. I, w- I, I would imagine like treasure Island was inspired by this. Um, and it's such a, this is such, you know, just a brilliant idea and, uh, who knows where it came from, but, and maybe there's some history behind that, that, you know, it'd be fun to, to look up, or maybe it's already in the book that I read. <laughs> um, and I've just forgotten, but, uh, it's, it's just a, a absolutely genius, you know, film. And I think this iteration, cause I've, I've seen this film, you know, a ton of times. And then I went back and read the book and that's such a satisfying experience because it is so different. There is so much more going on and it's, uh, the details are all mixed up. And so reading the book is its own satisfying thing. Even if you love the film, I, yeah. So I don't know. I'll dump, I'll jump into a few things. Cause I think some of the other stuff I want to talk about is in the notes, like cinematography wise framing, you know, they, they do a lot of wides, a lot of mediums and medium wides, right. Deep focus so that almost everything in the frame is in focus or at least close to it. Not to say that they never go shallow, you know, there's, there's scenes where they're shallow, uh, like the, the dinner scene that I played where he's given the toast. That's very shallow, right? We're, we're now entering into the inner worlds of Edmond, Albert and Mercedes. And so they put them all very shallow against the rest of everyone else, because, uh, you don't want to draw attention to the people around them when the focus is supposed to be on them. And so they do use some shallow depth, but for the majority of the film, we're pretty deep and wide and that's in order to let us see and feel the setting and so the framing itself isn't necessarily beautiful but really it sets you in the era and allows the set design and wardrobe to shine like i cannot imagine i would be heartbroken if they didn't at least get nominated if not win the academy for you know wardrobe and and set design like 2002 is I can't imagine anyone else is doing it better in 2002. Uh, this is, I think, some of the best wardrobing, you know, ever. And even in the interior shots, uh, as far as cinematography goes, uh, with like a window, there's this scene with Via Fort. I think it's where he's talking to Mercedes and she's pleading with him. And uh, Fernand is over here acting like he's never met him. You can see the city behind him through the window very, very well. It's not like overexposed. It's like perfectly exposed blue skies the landscape you can make out all the details in the back and that's obviously intentional because it requires a lot of light to get the exposure even with the exterior and to get the aperture wide open like you you need a ton of light for all those things to uh, to be to be true or the aperture to be stopped down closed down uh, not wide open stupid note um <laughs> bad note <laughs> um napoleon the as far as framing goes napoleon when we meet him is such a good shot because he's shot from this really low angle and he's towering over us as he stands over fernand and edmond so like in every way that frame makes sense because he's literally that's his position over our characters but also more symbolically that's how significant he was at the time that's napoleon bonaparte like he's bigger than life, even though he was only five, six, uh, which isn't that short, but modern day ideology, we make it sound like he was four eleven, um, but he was five, six, you know, probably around average for the time, but he still stood taller than everyone because of his importance to the world and to France in specific, 
you know, he, his story is really fascinating. He's got a lot of interesting stuff. In fact, you should go listen to our episode on uh, Bill and Ted to, to hear more about Napoleon. But the framing, you know, continues in the prison, right? A lot of wide angles help to squeeze the prison walls in on us because the longer frame may add a sense of space and freedom due to the depth of field and less texture around him. No, shoot wide, shoot uh, with a very small aperture to make everything as in focus as possible. And now they're like clumped together with the background. And now they feel, we feel prison. We feel their, their claustrophobia and how little they can move around. Um, it, it's, it's just good filmmaking. And it's also to make sure, you know, that we see the era, right? We, we need to, this is a period piece. You want to make sure you always are rooting your, your audience in the era um, and shooting wide and shooting deep allows that to, to, you know, be more of a reality. It would be almost a shame to shoot everything shallow with such beautiful sets and, and wardrobes and all these extras who are also decked out. Now it's not to say that's never a good idea to shoot shallow in a period piece, but um, in here, in this film, it makes complete and total sense uh, given the era 2002 so to speak not not necessarily just the uh, the period itself edmond there's a the scene early in the film whenever he escapes he's about to get arrested and he manages to escape uh, and he runs to mondego for help uh this is a really interesting scene because he's in the house and the interior of the house you can feel like it's morning that it's dawning and that's because you know he just rode all through the night in order to get to mondego and so they just did an incredible job of making it feel like dawn on the inside of a house. That's insane. Um, and so the house is a little underexposed. They hazed it, right? And it gives it this misty feeling, this misty quality, almost like the mist has invaded the house. And it's just a really great effect to feel the the time of the day that it is uh, that they didn't necessarily have to do, but was genius in helping pull off the 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 full effect one of my favorite moments in the film is a it's kind of stupid but it's just this the match cut whenever we're looking at viafort and edmond is about to tell him exactly why he's done what he's done like i got your number here we go and so we start in the spa and then we do this match cut back in time into viafort in his office um and they have this like gunshot that takes place as the the sound effect transition um and so it's just it cuts from a close-up of him to a close-up of him um and so a match cut or a match frame is where you're trying to match uh an element or maybe even all elements in rare cases uh from one frame to the next and so even though we're jumping not just across locations but across time this is a flashback they're using his head as the transition point to tie these two things together and so that's a match cut and the match cut steals its name uh, kind of from, uh, uh, whatchamacallit, my God, Lawrence of Arabia. They, they use an actual match to cut from now to a different time period. Uh, and so you should watch that film to see exactly what I mean, even though they use it differently, um, which is its own beautiful thing. And so it's a great transition in order to ensure we know we're in a flashback, right? It's very simple. It's very effective. Um, and just by using his face, in two different settings, along with that sound effect, you don't have to do anything else. You don't have to say, here's an establishing shot, you know, 13 years ago, 16 years ago, whatever. And now we're cutting in. No, we can just jump straight into the heart of the story because all the pieces are there. 
Uh, but really, the reason that I like it is because I just think it's dope. <laughs> like, it's such a good shot. Uh, it's beautiful. Cinematography-wise, the, the the use of shutter angle is really great. They 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 have a great use of a low shutter angle. If you're shooting digital, it would be a high shutter speed, and it just adds choppiness by reducing motion blur. You're not allowing as much light to get through and as much exposure to hit the camera. Uh, and so this is important to use in this film for a number of reasons. For one, reducing the motion blur creates a very actiony thing, right? At the sword fight, at the end, we're, we're you know, making it much more choppy, reducing the motion blur in order to give it a very actiony vibe. And so you see this in sports photography all the time or uh, sports filmmaking. You want this choppiness. It's very actiony. It's not flowing. It's not beautiful. And it's not, you know, this fluid thing. Uh, that's something you might want to do more with love stories, right? Where you might increase the, 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 the motion blur in order to create this more emotional uh, moment instead of this heightened, very intense feeling that the choppiness gives it. Uh, and so it's important for the, for the sword fight, but they also do it for another reason, which is during his training in prison, you have those, what, what's he training against the, the, the water droplets. Well, what happens if you have too much motion, motion blur, you can't see the water droplets. It's moving too fast. And so making it more choppy, reducing, reducing the motion blur allows you to actually see what he's up against, which is the, the droplets. And he's trying to beat the speed, the speed of the water falling. And so being able to make it more choppy, reducing motion blur lets you see both of those things, the droplet itself, as well as his hand speed. And it gives you the sense that, oh, crap. He's fast as hell, even though all they really had to do was reduce the speed that the, the water's dropping. But what they do whenever he's finally beating it is they move from we're shooting it, you know, uh, in profile to we're going to, which is when he's getting just clobbered by it, right? Uh, his hand is just getting all wet. And then we go from that and where profile, it's fast. It's going really, really hella quick. And then we shift to this uh, down angle, right? We're an, above him shooting down. And now we're going to slow the speed of the water in order to let him get his hand through uh, dry. But that angle also, it doesn't really reveal that we've slowed the water down, even though it's much slower, I want to say. But because of the, st the path of the water is much more sandwiched in on itself, right? It's not like it's going from one end of the screen to the other. Instead, it's just going down this very straight, narrow line. Um, and now it doesn't, it looks like it's still going fast because of how much it's in there. It looks like it's still going fast because of the choppiness. Uh, it's just a lot of very smart stuff that they're doing all around, uh, the shutter angle or the, the shutter speed smart stuff. Wow. That's not confusing at all. I know. Sorry. Everyone's just <laughs> no, you know, no, it, popping it's, a Advil. It's crazy <laughs> that it's crazy that you have to think about all that as a cinematographer, I mean, and director, right? I mean, you know, the director has to has to know how to convey what the, the, he wants, and then cinematographer has to know, okay, how do I make the camera do that? Yeah, uh, like, yeah, yeah, it, it's wild. Uh, to go into more simple stuff, um, well, let's look at some of the story and writing. Uh, I want to start with the sex scene, actually, because in my my opinion, I think they actually should have indulged a little more in the sex scene. I think for one, it could have made their connection a little bit stronger for the audience um, by just, here's the thing. They, they linger on it for all of like three seconds. We push in, we see them on the rocks making love and we fade out. Now, I think the reason they do this 
is because they they want a PG-13 film. Um, and so you don't want to belabor that. But I think they also knew that they were going to be marketing the Christian audience. This has a lot of very uh, strong Christian themes. And the last thing you want to do is put off your your 2002 super Christian audience through some, you know, gratuitous sex scene, which I would not have thought would would be gratuitous. But I think even extending it 10 seconds um, to show their faces a little bit more. Um, instead, they kind of cut to the firelight them without their clothes on under blankets or whatever they're doing. And it kind of alludes to it still makes that impression. I just think it could have made a stronger emotional engagement impression with the viewer, as well as made a stronger impression about Albert being their son, because that's ultimately what that scene is there for. It's to enforce the idea that that's his son. And you, I think you do a better job uh, at making that connection stronger by just delaying and hanging out on that scene a little bit longer. Uh, that's something I, I would have wanted to do differently. But as far as I, the, the writing stuff, the exposition, I love that they have an off-screen betrayal, right? We sit down, Fernand is drunk. He's sitting down with Danglar. And Danglar is like, how are you ever friends with, you know, this numbnuts or whatever he calls them. Uh, and, you know, Fernandez, he used to be my friend, but has the audacity to keep secrets from me. And Danglar's like, whoa, what secrets? And then we have this really long look as Fernandez contemplating and we cut away. The actual betrayal takes place off screen, right? Instead, we imply mischief after we've established Fernand's jealousy the information that he has, we established in the opening that he sees the letter passed, but now we're going to hold back for the reveal later on. And so the audience, we have an inkling, but not the full picture. We save the exposition for moments of conflict. We're not just going to dump it in your lap and then wait to see if that's a really, and some films do make this mistake of giving you the, the exposition, the information up front instead of, and then whenever we see the, the character discover it later, we think it's all obvious already. Whereas if you don't tell us up front, now we discover it along with Edmond and suddenly it's like, oh, the pieces do fit. Oh my God. And now it's a much more satisfying journey for the, for the viewer. Uh, because in the very next scene, uh, Edmond is arrested and we slowly piece together what exactly happened and why. And now you're giving the audience a chance to kind of stitch things together a little bit. Even if we don't have all the pieces, it's still fun. There's, there's still enough there to make us wonder and think we know, even though we don't have. So there's so much more to reveal. And, and I love the, the way they handled that by just letting it happen off screen. Uh, I like how they mark. This is exposition as well. Marking the passage of time in prison, right? The beatings. We know because his first day in, he's like, we have a little tradition here in Chateau d'If. Every year I'm going to beat your ass. <laughs> And so every from then on, every time we see him get his back, you know, just lit up by a whip, we know this has been another year. Um, and of course, we also see the deepening of the etching of God will God will give me justice. Right. That was a great that I loved that. It was such a great uh, little little bit there. So good. And eventually we we kind of see it uh, just start to get, go stale a little, a little a little bit. Right. Whenever he's. When we finally meet the priest and the priest is looking like, oh, I see, you know, whatever, a fellow Christian or whatever he says. And he's like, God, there's no place for God in here, priest. Um, that's where he gets his nickname, you know, the priest or whatever. And so, but even after all that, we still don't know exactly how long Edmond has been in there. 
we're, we're trying to contextually piece it together, but we don't have all the pieces. We don't know until Edmond tells Mercedes, which is great. Don't tell us twice. Don't tell us I've been in this prison for, you know, 10 years and it's going to take us three years to dig our way out or whatever. Like you're giving us enough, but we still, we we're trying to piece it together and we're having trouble. Don't tell us twice. Tell us once, but make us wait for it. Guessing and trying to piece it together for ourselves. That's also a much better uh, delivery of exposition and a better experience for the audience. Morel himself later on is used as exposition that Edmond is unrecognizable to his friends. And that's key, right? Edmond leans forward, clears his hair from his face, and he smiles. He's waiting to be recognized. And nothing, right? We cut to Morel, and he's like, what the F do you want, bro? You just woke me up out of the middle of the night. Um, and he's like, you know what? You told me what I needed to know. Edmond Dantes is dead. And so that whole sequence establishes why he can carry out his fake identity. Because if one of his closest friends or whatever, someone that was so important to his life doesn't recognize him and and was even willing to get up in the middle of the night and discuss him, like that, that says something. And so he now feels like, wow, I really am dead in this world um, and is able to go and start executing his, his journey, which is an interesting journey. Edmond begins as a pure spirit. He's innocent. He's earnest, right? Even Villefort kind of lays it all out. He's like, no, it's you that's innocent, foolish and innocent. I believe these are the worst charges that could be leveled against you. And so that is kind of the stakes of the film. And it's what you were talking about earlier about his true enemy is himself. Because Edmond is uh, what we're really fighting for is to keep this image of Edmond. Because the real stakes are losing our Edmond forever to revenge and bitterness. Edmond escapes. And this is exemplified very early on. And this is why I think that decision to kill the jailer is so important because Edmond escapes and his very first act of freedom is revenge. After just having been told by the priest, don't use this money, don't live in revenge, don't be that person. The very, very first thing he does is kill the warden. And the warden was ready to just run away. He was like, hey, I'm good. <laughs> like he didn't want none of that business. Instead, he goes after him despite uh, the charge that he was given by the priest. And then, of course, he gets, you know, to the, the land. And the first thing that happens, right, is he demonstrates everything he's learned from prison. Also part of his journey, right? He gets on the, the beach and he has to fight Jacopo or Jacopo. And so what do we get to learn? He demonstrates his fighting skill, right? Versus Jacopo. He demonstrates his wit to save his own life and earn a loyal friend, right? This is all from, this is a completely different foolish and innocent person. Um, now we're really learning who, who he is now because that whole sequence of him escaping prison, that's very symbolic to his character. Edmond Dantes is dead. He, right? It's very Christ-like in one sense. Uh, he's buried at sea and the person that comes out is a very different person. And so we're demonstrating who this new person is. He's full of revenge. He's full of wit. He's full of fighting skill. Um, and it also demonstrates though, that he's not interested in indiscriminate killing, just people who have wronged him revenge, which is his ultimate test. Now moving on to the comedic stuff. 
I like the use of comedy in here. It's comedic beats help cut the tension, right? <laughs> Early in the film, or at least halfway through, whenever he meets the priest, he tells him, right, there, there are 72,514 stones in my cell. The priest looks at him and says, but have you named them yet? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Like that's, you think you've been here a long time. No, you, you haven't think, been here a long time. And the great, oh, that's already such a good line. But the response is so much better because Edmond looks at him and then he breaks down and weeps. <laughs> like He's like, yeah. oh God, I'm going to die. Can, if I could just say something, one thing I was thinking about while watching that whole scenario was that, and all the prison parts were that it's very, it's really hard for a film to make you feel the passage of time when nothing happens. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So like it's, it's, you know, as a viewer, I can watch, I can watch them digging. I can watch them, him learning from the old man. I can watch them plotting, but it's very, it's very hard all the way up until that to understand. I mean, I get, okay, he has a beard now. I understand, but to feel the, the absolute, you know, boredom, and just nothingness of being there for how however many years before anything happens. It's very hard to do that. I don't necessarily think this movie actually did that. I'm saying I'm just making a statement of Agreed. That's it's something very hard mm -hmm. to do. And it's something I think that most films don't really want to do. They want to just get through that, you know, let you know it's been a long time and move on. But I would be really interested. I mean, I think there are some movies that that do that really well that I won't mention, but I, I, it's, that is the movie. Then the movie is right. that experience, yeah. you know, of the nothingness of the passing of time and they're, they're hurtful and, and painful. I think what they did in this movie was great considering what it was, but I would be interested in, in what that would feel like to be Edmund Dantes or be someone falsely imprisoned for a long time and to feel what that feels like. Anyway, yeah, and I th I think we might have our, our opportunity. So I, I was curious because after watching the film and thinking about the book, I was like, man, this would make a. I don't want to see this made as a movie again. I think for me, this version of, even though I haven't seen the other versions, this version for me is perfect. Like I, I don't want anything different, but I would be interested in seeing like a series, like a one or two season series of the book, like a little bit more accurate you know translation of the book which would still be a completely fresh view and apparently there is one and but they're they're still taking some liberties i i want to say they're setting it in partly in china and somewhere else i forget what were the other yeah so i have no idea what that's gonna look like um but i i'll likely watch it because that suits me just fine but yeah, anyway, so hopefully we'll we'll get a chance, maybe if it's like a 10 or 20 episode uh, series, then you can spend one or two episodes of, you know, at least them in jail and, you know, plotting their, their escape or whatever. Yeah. But comedy as a, a way to cut tension. And so we have that little joke from the priest and then whenever he escapes, right, and he kills, he kills the warden and then we cut to the jailers at the top of the ridge one says the other we could have handled that a bit better 
That's so good. Yeah. I love that, right? And it helps us feel the joy. That little moment itself, I think, helps us feel the joy of the next scene with Edmond on the beach celebrating. Because you, you have to remember, too, we're transitioning from a really tragic moment. We we come to love the priest. He stands for everything good, everything we want for Edmond um, and the hope that we have for Edmond. Now, watching him die, that's a hard moment. And we we but we also need to celebrate with Edmond on the beach as he's escaped. And so I think a joke there helps cut the tension and transition us into a joyous moment, a moment of celebration whenever he's running like a madman, which... You know, maybe that's right. Maybe it's accurate um, on the beach. And then comedy wise, you also have Jacopo. I love Luis Guzman. Like he's so good. And I think he's at his best in this film. And I he does a lot to help add levity to a pretty heavy story. And I think that's important because this is an adventure story. It's not a dark revenge story, which is what we're trying. That's the tension in the film. Is this adventure? Is this revenge? And so levity helps keep things light and set expectations for a hopeful ending instead of a bloodthirsty hero. The lighter you can make it in, in these dark times, uh, the more okay we are with having a good ending. Now, if you keep everything dark the entire time and have a good ending, uh, it's got, it, it feels weird. I don't think it, it plays quite as well. And so moments of levity really, really help. But Jacopo is an interesting character because he also serves as his conscience, Right. He's our ability to test Edmond and test his will and resolution for revenge. And he's a voice of reason for the audience, right? He he sets him up with uh, Mercedes and man, Edmond is not happy about that, right? He grabs him um, and he says, you do anything like that again, I'll finish the job I started. Um, and he's like, hey, you got everything, money, a beautiful woman who loves you. You have your health. Just let it go. Let's move on. And that we need that moment because that, as an audience, you kind of start to feel that way. You're like, she loves, she, she recognizes them. What are you doing? You're going to just wallow in your bitterness instead of like, I don't know, get back together with the love of your life. What, what, what are you doing? And so having them be our voice there is so good and so needed. Um, but it also acts and that that's important because if he's our conscience and if he's our voice of reason, then at the very end of the film, mm-hmm. he also acts to show us it's okay to fight and it's okay to kill Ver- Fernand because our conscience is saying this is no longer revenge. This is for our safety and for our future. And so he's critical. He's a mission critical part of this story. Even if he f- feels a little superfluous and as just a sidekick, he's actually very, very important um, to what's happening in the, in the story, in the heart of the story. Last notes are on directing and performance. These are very silly, small things, but I think uh, they're important from a directing standpoint. And so one of them is the chair in the prison. Whenever he sits in the chair, there's something that happens in that moment that I thought was very interesting and significant, which is he asks permission to sit in the chair. I mean, you're in jail. Who who cares what you're about to do, bro? But he sees the chair and he looks at uh, the priest and he visually is asked, may I? Right. And then he sits in the chair. Right. It adds a beat and implies significance. And so we read his reaction a lot more strongly than he would than we would if he had just sit and like had a moment of relief, right? Instead, 
removing that little beat takes away some of that significance and allowing him to say, is it okay? Now we're re-engaging with our, our imagination to say, oh crap, it's been years and you were right. There's nothing in his cell. He does not get to sit down. He has to lay down um, or lean against a wall. He can't really rest his legs in a satisfying way. And so we start to engage our imagination with just that little permission, that little gesture. Um, and I think that, I mean, that could either go to performance or, or directing, but I would assume that's a directing moment whenever he's like, because now you need the coverage of uh, the priest's reaction. And so you need to kind of, you know, harmonize that a little bit. Uh, and it's really good because it's reemphasizing again, what you were talking about. He's been in jail for a long time. Um, and so this is a good moment. Uh, another little directing moment is ending a scene with energy. Uh, and this, this moment is courtesy of after Edmond is making up with Mercedes, they've had sex again and she's waking up in his castle or whatever he's living in that absurd, uh, thing. And she's waking up after reconciling. Right. And she gets news from Jacopo that they're leaving with Edmond. She's so excited. She jumps up. She runs out the scene. That's not the excitement I'm talking about. Because the, the real energy from the scene is from Jacopo himself. He's chasing after her, right? But, 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 but madam, but madam, right? And then we cut. And I love that because he could have just let her walk out. But chasing her adds energy and excitement to the moment. There's something good that's about to happen. Now our expectations are being lifted. And that's all playing in harmony with each other. Not just her running out, but him kind of stammering and being a little bit of a comedic goof um, on, on his way out. And so that's a really important moment because now this hope is about to get dashed as everything that unfolds after, right? We're now threatened by Fernand's insane jealousy and his inability to accept uh, Edmond as an equal, um, which he is much more now because he was always more than an equal in spirit, but now in every other way too, he's been absolutely crushed by this man he looks down on. Yeah. That's a great point. I, that scene, it, I just, am, I'm imagining that scene of her running out excited without him chasing her and it's much more bland, but it's, it's, I think it, it adds the joy to her that, that, that she's experiencing that, that he's trying to slow her down and she will not be slowed down. Mm. You know, she is, she is not going to be slowed down by Jacopo who's saying, Hey, wait, wait, put on your clothes. She, <laughs> Like, wait, 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 and keeps keeps trying to get her to slow down, and she will not be slowed down. I, I think that's, that's, yeah, I didn't even spot that. That's great. Good point. Nice. Yeah, I mean, that's that's all I got. So, which, do you have a favorite version after watching both? Are you with V, um, or are you good with uh, the the updated version? Um, I mean, just because I, I, yeah, it's really hard, because I like them both for, hmm very different reasons. I can absolutely see, you know, had 2002 not come out, you know, had there not been an updated version, I would absolutely adore the first version, uh, the 1934 version. I feel absolutely. Like, I feel like you need to go watch, uh, is it Depardieu? Cause there's, there's so many versions of the count. Um, mm -hmm. and so I feel like you need to go watch them all now for me. I know. I, <laughs> I agree. I agree. I, I guess the point is, is that, is that the original or the 1934 version is amazing for it being 1934. It's a little harder to follow. Mm. Um, they talk really fast and they say a lot of things that you need to catch, but um, 
for it being 1934, it's it's absolutely un. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. But I do I do enjoy the the changes that they made in 2002, and I and I loved it. So I'm I can't really pick to be honest. I mean, nice. I think if I had to pick, if you had a gun to my head, I'd say 2002, just because I I you know identify with it more. Yeah. It's, you know, 70 years later, but I still enjoyed the the original 1934 version. Nice. Yeah. Cool. So. What are you going to recommend? Do you have any other 90-year-old films that you want to recommend? Or Not 90, <laughs> not okay. 90, but uh, a good 40. Um, right. Well, okay, so this, what I want to recommend this week is not necessarily a film as maybe a body of work, kind of. For whatever reason, I think just from watching the 1934 version, I kind of like started thinking about darker films that I enjoyed as a kid, you know? And then that got me down this kind of trail of, of, you know, dark movies for children. And so I wanted to just recommend Don Bluth as a, a general, you know, filmmaker, writer, director, whatever. I mean, American Tale, Land Before Time, Secret of Nim, All Dogs Go to Heaven. I mean, these are, these are films that like as a kid kind of shaped me in a way that I didn't even realize it because, you know, as a kid, and I think we've talked about it on this podcast, it's really hard to identify emotion and not just identify what that emotion is, but then how to deal with it. And I think that what he did with movies like that was give kids an outlet to, to feel scared, to feel loss before Pixar, you know what I mean? Before, you know, cause I think in Pixar movies, like somebody dies at the beginning of all of them and it's so emotional, but in it, you know, it just, the darkness of his films, allowing them to be dark, his animated films, allowing them to be dark, um, allowing bad things to happen, but also allowing a silver lining, even, even around this kind of like darkened theme, just made it okay as a kid to feel like, like things don't always have to be hunky dory. And that's okay because you don't necessarily know that it is a bad thing until later. Yeah. So I recommend Don Bluth. Nice. So as promised, I'm going to recommend the book, Alexander mm-hmm. Dumas, The Count of Monte Cristo. There's so much different between the film adaptation and, and the novel that I think you can still have a very fresh digestion, right? Uh, you know, of, of the story and so many wrinkles. And the book is so interesting because there's so many cultural things that takes you a while to understand and that because there's there's all these weird little moments where they negotiate trivial things that to us is just like why are you talking about this so as an example in the in the movie right he's gonna give the toast for albert's birthday 16th birthday but before giving the toast he makes us elaborate you know gesture about why he's giving the toast instead of Fernand, right? And so in that in a similar but much more belabored way in the novel, there's all these little cultural things that happen when someone is like answering the door. Someone comes to the door and they they have all these little witty repartees. Um, and that's very like I don't know, of the time, right? What, what do you call the fencing? Like, you know, there's a lot of fencing going on in this, in this time frame, And so uh, there's a lot of verbal fencing that happens. And so if uh, someone is led into their house by like the maid or the butler or whoever uh, servant, 
and then they have to wait a minute before the the host comes and greets them in the the foyer or or whatever it suddenly becomes a conversation about why didn't you answer the door and it's really fascinating because like oh you see i couldn't answer the door because i was too busy making preparations for your meal oh well you know uh if if you were so busy making preparations why weren't they ready before you know it just becomes as if you were expecting me at noon and it is noon you know it's just so (laughs) it's so fascinating and by the end of it it's really funny and endearing um and it uh in some ways makes you wish for a time whenever there was such i don't know uh attention to detail on how we treat each other in the small ways uh and so yeah i love the book it's uh incredibly readable for a film almost 200 years it's 180 years old it's crazy and it's still incredible as opposed to there's other works that are very hard to read for me like uh basically all the women are way too smart in this era uh like mary shelley and the brontes um i just struggle because they're 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 so dense in their writing they write 200 pages that could have taken up 500 whereas Dumas writes a thousand pages that could have taken up 200. Like it's, it's so good in such different ways. And he's a genius uh, because I don't know how he thinks of some of this stuff, but anyway, read the book incredibly worth it. I think. Yeah. And stay tuned for next week when we are going to be covering the Batman. Now, Todd, this is the new one. I know. Not Stop the it. Adam West version. Leave me alone. <laughs> Got it. Not the Adam West version. Got it. The Batman. There hasn't been a The Batman yet. There hasn't been a The Batman. Um, (laughs) So uh, don't forget to subscribe if you're enjoying the show and uh, drop us a review. Apparently, we got a review coming on Spotify. I don't know how to see those yet. And so Charlie the Parasite, that's forever your name on here, bro, uh, has said that he dropped us a review on Spotify. And so I can't find it yet or it hasn't propagated uh, to their their system. And so uh, I'll, I'll be keeping a lookout for that. And if you want to comment on this episode, you can do that at thepestlepodcast.com slash the Count of Monte Cristo. And our quote of the day is from Alexandre Dumas. A gen- all generals... I can't say that word. All generalizations are dangerous, even this one. It took me a second. (laughs) That took me a second when I read it. I was like, wait, which one? Oh, the one I just said. Oh, okay, got it, got it. It's brilliant. What a brilliant line. It's so good, and it's so true. Um, I mean, I remember when I picked this quote, I had a much bigger idea of how it tied into this story. Uh, that's gone. <laughs> like I don't, I don't remember anymore. That was that was three days ago, Wes. Not you know Sunday afternoon, <laughs> yeah, Wes. <laughs> but I well, like that, it. I'm, okay. I'm not a fan of uh, generalizations in general uh, because I think it's so easy to box someone in and and to not see them as the person they are. Instead, if you can clump them together, whether it's as a group or just make your snap decisions and move on with your life, we as a society really enjoy that. We enjoy summing someone up putting a label on it and shoving it out of sight. But it's so much easier to move on with your life if you don't have to deal with complexity. And everything in life is far more complex than we make it out to be. Uh, this is one of the the dangers of, of the world and of news media. I was watching this really old clip the other day from Noam Chomsky. I want to say it was Noam Chomsky. Uh, and he's talking about problem with the media. 
and and especially like news uh because he's like man if you go on to a news uh to whatever cnn or fox or whoever you like uh you go on into one of these segments and you're having a debate with someone right how you you have there's only so many things you can say you have to stick with general convention general wisdom in order to get your thoughts across because if there's two and a half minutes between commercial breaks you can't throw out something crazy like uh you know why do you think we you know they crashed planes into the 9-11 towers you can't say something like that and unpack it in the 30 seconds of time that you're allotted instead you need to say yeah, that's evil. No one should ever do that. Well, yeah, no shit. Like, that's not really exploring the complexity of the situation, though. And life is always going to be more complex. And so generalizing is such a dangerous way to digest the world. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I don't watch, you know, broadcast news is because you're never going to get into the complexity and nuances of any topic. It's always going to be distilled into some generalized way that's just going to pander to whoever their target demo is, whoever's going to be uh, watching those commercials uh, in between those breaks. Uh, and so I, I appreciate his, you know, approach to uh, thinking about generalizations because they are dangerous. Um, they're, and even though, even if they can be useful at times, they, they it's still probably, you know, if we're, for generalizing, <laughs> not yeah, a good I was way. Say, there's a lot of generalization going <laughs> yeah, on. Yeah, right that's right. Uh, it's generally still, you know, uh, not a great way to live your day to day. Agreed. Agreed. Well said. Well said. I love it. Well, guys, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I had a really, really great time talking about the Count of Monte Cristo. Hopefully you did too. Um, make sure to join us next week. We'll, we'll be covering the Batman uh, coming out soon. And uh, as Wes said, please subscribe, review us on iTunes, leave us a comment. Tell us what you'd like to see us uh, cover. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, until next week, I'm Todd. I'm Wes. Go watch the movies.